Welcome back to Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and joining us back in studio with us today is Brenda Hafera and Emma Waters. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Well, Brenda, you serve as an Associate Director and Senior Policy Analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Center for American Studies. And Emma, you serve as a Research Associate in the Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. I love the perspectives that you all bring when you are on this show. So I'm very excited for the conversation ahead. It's going to get a little spicy. I've <laughs> 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 already been having some great conversation just sitting here getting ready to, to get going. But I think it was probably about six weeks ago that we were all super eager for fall to start. It's November 9th. We're already in the middle of fall. And now the question is, when do you start listening to Christmas music? I have a hard and fast rule that I can't until at least November 15th. It's very, very specific. Is that specific. an arbitrary and date? No. Or? So what happened was <laughs> in college, I had a roommate who loved Christmas music. I was like, you know what? I will start listening to Christmas music early on. So I started on November 1st. And on that year, I was like, this is this is too early. This is too much. And so then I decided to push back two weeks. And I was like, all right, moving forward, November 15th will be the earliest I do it. And that's worked for me okay past few years. That's great. (laughs) I'm a pretty hard line, like not until after Thanksgiving person. Okay. However, I I trust that and I respect that. It's held up so far. But in having a daughter, I admit that I have been singing Christmas carols to her all week. So even though we're not technically listening to it, it is coming out. So I don't know, maybe it's something's in the air, but I think I will probably start listening a little sooner this Mm -hmm, year. mm -hmm. Brenda, Christmas, Christmas music? I wait until after Thanksgiving, okay. and my neighbor did start, because I could hear it, oh, of course, no. on November 1st, and my immediate reaction was, I really love the fall, and oh, I want, you know, everything yeah. in its season kind of thing. Don't of like, rush I, it. Don't rush into, because Christmas to me, of course, says winter, and I just want to enjoy the fall before getting to winter. Yeah, that's very fair. It's very fair. <laughs> yeah. you got to soak up the season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, as I mentioned, we have lots to cover on today's show. Up on today's Problematic Women, we are talking surrogacy, the the details of it, what exactly it is, how frequently it happens, why celebrities are not the only ones getting involved in the issue of surrogacy. Um, plus, we're going to talk a little bit more about AI today, specifically as it relates to its effect on children and specifically talking about the porn industry and why AI is really shifting the conversation in this area. Plus, we'll have a little bit of fun talking about dating. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by taking a moment to leave us a rating and review wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We are across all podcast platforms. All right, let's get to it. You don't often hear too much about surrogacy unless it's in the same breath that is mentioning some celebrity who had someone else carry their child. Now, I jumped in and did a little bit of research on this topic. Emma and Brenda, you all are more well-versed in this area than I am. But I was interested to read just about different types of surrogacy. So there's kind of two main types. You have traditional surrogacy. That's where the surrogate is the egg donor. Uh, And this is actually not as common in the United States as it used to be. That's according to Healthline. What is more common is gestational surrogacy. This is when through um, in vitro fertilization or IVF, the fertilized embryo is transported into the surrogate's uterus, and the surrogate is carrying that child. Some of the most well-known, we mentioned celebrities, some of the most well-known celebrities who have had a surrogate carry their baby include Kim Kardashian, Rebel Wilson, Paris Hilton, and Chrissy Teigen, just to name a few. There are quite a lot, and I was pretty surprised by some of the names on the list. But celebrities, they are not the only ones using a surrogate to bring a child into the world. The National Library of Medicine reports that between 1999 and 2013, there were over 30,000 surrogate pregnancies just in the U.S. So let's talk about 
what the reasons are for why women will choose to have a surrogate carry their child. I'm guessing it's obviously a little bit different for every woman why she makes that choice, but what are some of the most common reasons that we know? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so one of the well actually there's there's really three reasons going into this um first there's the very sympathetic case that i think everyone is familiar with that they think of when they think of surrogacy and that is of an infertile woman who through um, a cancer diagnosis or an early hysterectomy is physically unable to carry the child herself and therefore in need of another woman Um, in many other instances you have women who are using a surrogate in order to preserve their body so many of the celebrities that you just (laughs) mentioned here they have no reason physically why they couldn't carry the child, but they didn't want to go through the difficulty, the weight gain, the birth, the recovery themselves. Um, Notably, Khloe Kardashian birthed a child through a surrogate this year and then came out very openly talking about how she doesn't feel connected to this child like she feels to her other children that she carried and birthed herself. Um, Because pregnancy is an incredibly powerful bonding time for both the mother and child. Um, And so she's actually started to raise a bit of awareness about the unspoken side of surrogacy, um, just about the maternal side. Um, But then the other part that really needs to be highlighted is that in many cases, cases, the expansion of the commercial surrogacy industry is not necessarily due to women looking for surrogates, but to men who need a womb in order to birth children. So the fertility industry, as we know it today, is largely being expanded and fueled by um, non-traditional couples. So same-sex male partnerships, single individuals, um, or even transgender persons who are no longer able to procreate because of the decisions they've made about their body. Um, So some of the largest research groups, some of the largest venture capitalist firms are run by men in same-sex relationships who literally need a woman's womb in order to birth a child. And because of that, um, you see a huge expansion in the surrogacy market, um, finding ways to legalize the process, to change laws such that the surrogate's name is not even listed on the birth certificate, but just the intended parents. Um, And in many states, you no longer have a mother and father. You just have parent one and parent two further enabling um, this gender ideology movement to really infuse itself within reproductive technology. Um, And frankly, that's the largest component of this that's really fueling the massive expansion that we're seeing in surrogacy. Mm. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. I was really fascinated, Emma, by an ex post that you shared with me. Um, So there, it appears, is a gay couple. They hired a surrogate, obviously a woman, to to carry their child. And uh, at month eight of the pregnancy, the woman comes to them and says, I don't want to give this child up. I bonded with this child. They're in my womb. And I would actually like to keep this baby as my own. Now, there was a lot of comments on this post. Um, one woman wrote, surrogacy is modern day slavery. Um, Dr. Mill, who shared the story, said it's another reason human trafficking, in parentheses, is the, in the form of surrogacy is bad. Another person commented that using surrogacy is indicative of colonialism slash imperialism, uh, has imperialism undertones. So, I mean, Is it extreme to call surrogacy something like modern-day slavery, human trafficking? What do you all think? So in the first major court case that dealt with surrogacy was the Baby M case in New Jersey. And it dealt with a woman who was both the surrogate and the biological mother of the child. It was her egg that was used. And after giving birth to the child, she realized that it would be incredibly difficult to give up this child and that, in fact, this was her child and she did not want to relinquish it to this couple, even though she had signed a contract. And what ensued was a massive court case trying to deal with the gravity and the complications emotionally, physically, mentally that come with surrogacy. Interestingly, um, that court case ruled that Uh, surrogacy is a form of baby selling or human trafficking like we would call it and for that reason the surrogate mother is the mother of the child and was actually awarded visitation rights um, for the rest of the child's life Um, and so this and and this is one of the first ones across the board um, there's there's I won't say widespread but there is a large agreement that 
um, surrogacy, particularly commercial surrogacy, is baby selling. Um, and the reason that that is is because the only difference between a legitimate commercial surrogacy contract and baby selling, which is very illegal, is the timing of the contract. Hmm. If a contract is established between intended parents and a surrogate before the child is conceived and implanted, then it's a legitimate surrogacy contract um, and there's no problem with it. If the surrogate in the exact same scenario were to conceive the child and then sign the contract, that would be baby selling and it's very illegal. So it is only a difference in timing, not in in content at all. Um, And Adeline Allen, who is a legal professor at Trinity School for Law um, and and did a year at the Witherspoon Institute with Dr. Robbie George writing on surrogacy, she drew to mind something that I think is so profound and telling. And she was comparing modern commercial surrogacy to the transatlantic slave period. Mm. So during the transatlantic slave period, um, the justification for slavery that was used is that we aren't buying and selling persons because that would be a little immoral. But they said at the time that we're only buying and selling the labor, the time, the difficulty of these persons, but not the persons themselves. And that's how they tried to justify this clearly immoral industry. Mm. If you look at surrogacy contracts today and common speech when it comes to surrogacy contracts, they are very, very clear to say that we are not paying a surrogate to birth a child because that would be baby selling and we don't sell babies. We're paying her for the difficulty and time um, that pregnancy requires of a woman and we're paying her for her labor. Um, And Adeline Allen makes the point that this is pretty much the same thing Hmm. that ultimately you're paying a surrogate for the child she carries um you're yeah like we can't pretend otherwise really um and a lot of people have um come around to this a lot of european countries have banned and outlaw surrogacy particularly commercial surrogacy because of the concerns of exploitation um but I don't think that it is far-fetched to make that case. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, our initial jurisprudence on it does. So yeah. there, there's a lot of backing to it. Mm, there's a lot there. And I want to talk a little bit more in a second about the countries that have banned this because I think that's fascinating. But, Brenda, you do so much work and research on the family and creating holistic families. This is something we were just talking about and the need for fathers in the home and, and mothers. I mean, how how does an issue like surrogacy affect that conversation when you're looking at creating healthy whole families i think a lot of people would say well you know it doesn't matter how the baby is is carried it's that you know they have parents right that you know love them but in your research thoughts on this how does having an outside individual carry that child maybe affect the child in the long run so i think Emma's comments also highlighted this question of what is our law for these things kind of aiming at? And the question in or the response that this fellow came up with on X of he has a woman who agreed to be a surrogate and then she wants to keep the child. His view is me and my partner Mm -hmm. want this child as opposed to what is in the best interest of the child? Mm. So what should our laws be aiming at? Should our laws be aiming at this kind of autonomous idea that having a child is a right and I should be able to do whatever it is that makes me happy mm-hmm. and this couple wants to be able to have a child and so they should be able to do that versus should our laws be aimed at what is in the best interest of children? Because someone needs to be able to speak for the children because they cannot speak for themselves. But that gets messy because then that gets right into the pro-life argument. <laughs> uh, that, that's the whole foundation for the, the pro-abortion movement is, well, this isn't a real person. So the adults make the decisions that ultimately affect the one who has no voice. Right. I think it's ultimately smoke and mirrors. As as Emma was talking, I was thinking, well, so the, the needle that they're trying to thread is that you're paying the woman for the burdens of childcare and for this this process, all the expense, all the, you know, difficulties with her body, all these things. If you're paying her for that, then you have no right to the child. If she backs out of the contract, Mm. she's already done all those things. So technically, she's fulfilling those obligations. Mm. So how do you get around that? 
because she wouldn't be actually reneging on the contract. Well, this is where they get you um, because that's correct. And everything you said is so well said. um, And it explains how we got from the Supreme Court case to this unregulated industry that we have today. Um, But they only pay the surrogate in installments. And surrogacy contracts mm. are incredibly detailed in what is allowed and what is not allowed. And so they pay her after the first trimester, after the second trimester, and then after the birth of the child, typically, and three payments. And then it's clearly outlined what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And if she is to renege on any portion of the contract, then she is um, potentially going to lose the rest of the money that she was promised. And so to give you an idea of what a common surrogacy contract requires is, first of all, surrogacy contracts by and large across the board all have something called a reduction or a termination of fetus clause which means that at any point in the pregnancy for any reason if the intended parents want the surrogate to abort one or all of the children she Mm. is carrying they have the legal right to request it and if she is to say no then she is actually in violation of her contract and is even subject to a lawsuit if the parents want to take it this far. Um, And there are countless cases, frankly, of surrogates um, signing on to be a surrogate um, with all of the best of intentions, not thinking that they would be the one put in this position and then Mm -hmm. finding themselves in a place where they decided to become a surrogate because they needed money. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're making anywhere from $20,000 to $60,000 on average to carry this child. Um, But they don't want to kill the baby within them. They bonded with the baby, whether they like it or not, um, or they don't believe in abortion. Um, And then intended parents who may live in the United States, may not live in the United States, request it. And they're put in this terrible, terrible situation where they have now, with their own – with their own agreement to join into the surrogacy contract, have put this baby's life at risk. Um, so Melissa Cook in 2017 in California, she was carrying triplets for a man that she later found out was single, deaf, and blind and working part-time and living in his parents' basement. But because the surrogacy industry is so unregulated, he had created an embryo by buying an egg and using his sperm and buying a surrogate that he was then going to have a full legal right to these three children, despite the fact that he was in no position to care for them and frankly didn't have the money to care for them. He requested her to get one of the children aborted. She refused. A huge legal battle ensued. um, And he later backed off and all three children were born but she has no idea what happened to them whether he's put up for adoption nothing um and this past summer in california a surrogate was um diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer about halfway through her pregnancy and doctors said okay the best we can do is we can try to get you to 32 weeks um that's as long as you can make it before you're not going to be able to recover um and then we can do a c-section get the child out at 32 weeks and while there could be medical complications with technology you can largely save a child's life Mm -hmm. um the intended parents said no and they said that we um ordered a healthy child not a child with potential health complications and they asked her to abort the baby just this summer she refused What's so tricky about this is that while this baby is within the surrogate, the surrogate has legal right over decisions that happen. As soon as the baby is removed from the surrogate, she no longer has legal rights. Mm. And in her case, her cancer became so advanced that they decided to birth the baby around 28 weeks. Mm. And the parents, the intended parents, refused to provide life-saving care. And once the baby is outside of the surrogate, she does not have the legal right to say, forget what these guys are saying. I'm going to protect the life of this child. And so the surrogate is utterly heartbroken. I'm going to spoken out about this because she had to watch a baby die because of a surrogacy agreement that she entered into. And these these aren't hypothetical rare situations. These are very common. Yeah, it's just incredibly sad. Um, But think about, yes, this is the point. Like, if the lady on X was so bonded with this baby that she couldn't give it up, imagine how bonded the baby is to the surrogate Mm. when the surrogate is the only mother that this child has ever known. Mm -hmm. He has learned the sound of her voice. He has tasted her amniotic fluid. Um, Her colostrum, which is like the pre-breast milk that women um, produce upon birth, is the exact same scent as the amniotic fluid the baby has been swimming in for nine months. Wow. So that when the baby comes out of the womb in this beautiful but terrifying experience, 
they're able to smell something that smells like home, like their mm, mother. That's beautiful. And it's natural and good. Um, but in surrogacy pregnancies, you then strip the child from the only mother they've ever known, put them in the hands of strangers. And we know from infant adoptions, right, that even that can have a huge um, impact on the child going forward. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so there are countries that have said, we're looking at all of this information, and we've decided we're not going to allow surrogacy in our country. And a lot of these nations, Emma, you mentioned, are actually in Europe, correct? That's correct. Um, I'm seeing if I can pull up the list right now, because it's just like so delightful to read from. Uh, (laughs) We'll see. So basically, in short, most European countries actually um, outlaw or ban um, all forms of commercial surrogacy. Now, they may allow altruistic, but that's rare. But commercial surrogacy, especially international commercial surrogacy, is largely banned. Um, and what's interesting is in recent years, um, you all may be familiar with India, Nepal, and Thailand being known for one of the largest international surrogacy industries in the world. Oh, interesting. India was actually bringing in $2.5 billion annually from their surrogacy um, practices alone. And this is the 2012 numbers. Um But they found that it was so exploitive of the surrogates in their country um, that they actually banned the practice outright um, and have actually significantly limited who within the country can even access a commercial surrogate. So in India, if you want to use a surrogate and you are Indian and the surrogate is Indian, you have to be a heterosexual married couple who for five years has been unable to conceive a child naturally, and then you can be considered for it. So they've like they went from the largest industry to not. Um, but China, France, Italy, Germany, Canada, Brazil, Denmark, many, many more countries all completely ban international commercial surrogacy or even surrogacy within the state. The only two nations that currently have a thriving commercial surrogacy um, industry open to other countries is the United States and war-torn Ukraine, which oh. as of last month wow. has returned to pre-war levels of surrogacy pregnancies. Um, and there are stories across all major media uh, news media sites um, that show surrogates living in bomb shelters in order to protect them and the child wow. they are bearing for other international couples. It's absolutely insane. That is insane. That's a story no one's talking about. My <laughs> goodness, that is wild. Okay. And I was remembering um, before we got started that it was I want to say several months ago, maybe it was just a year ago that we had you on to talk about the situation with China and America and how many Chinese individuals are having Americans carry their babies. That's a whole other conversation. Um, I just really appreciate your insight on this issue. And we're going to we're going to keep having you on to talk about this. It's like, wow, this is such a kind of a bombshell of information. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you keep in mind birthright citizenship. So anytime Mm. a foreign national uses a surrogate in the U.S. in our unregulated market, their kid automatically gets citizenship. Mm. Yeah. It's it's insane. So much more to say. Okay. Well, we have to move on, but we're going to have you back on to talk more about this. (laughs) All right. Well, up next, we're going to talk a little bit about another issue that is affecting kids, specifically AI images. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to get the news and keep up with issues that I really care about. If you're anything like me, you love researching issues on YouTube or just going there to be entertained. But sometimes it's really hard to know what information is actually well-researched and trustworthy. And that is where the Daily Signal YouTube channel comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the news that you care about and give you data and fulfill and the facts in a really succinct and also entertaining way. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews like this one, and much more. So go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so that you stay informed and never miss out on the news that actually matters. Well, AI is easy to access now, and it's honestly gotten decently user-friendly. The Wall Street Journal's Tech News Briefing podcast recently reported on a situation of a high school in New Jersey where a student took photos of girls in the class from social media and used AI to make fake nudes of the girls that were in their class and spread them around among the boys in the class. Now, this is an issue that both Brenda and Emma, I know you work on. What do we know about the AI technology that is 
being used to do things like create pornographic images from photos just of individuals on Instagram, let's say. Okay, so here's what we know. And it's worth noting that this industry has been rapidly developing in the last two years alone, such that what would have been unimaginable even five years ago is now something like you said that high schoolers can easily access um, and pay a very small fee for or frankly get for free. And so what's happening here is what um, they're able to do, right, like you mentioned, is use pictures, um, upload them into different AI programs that are devoted to imagining or creating what a person looks like without clothes on. Um, and so they're able to do this to create everything from deep fake pornography, pornography of celebrities, of people that they know, um, and even of child pornography, which mm-hmm. is a huge realm that is constantly developing in the most perverse ways here. Um, but what's so terrible about this is that there are no laws um, federally, there, there are no laws on the federal level that actually prohibit or ban this. So they do say that pornography of children is illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the FBI actually like researches it, right, they like crack down on it, but they don't do it as much as they should. But there's no laws actually banning AI um, videos of it. So what's really important, I think, to know about this on like the top line is that one, AI programs are learning from real content. Mm. This is not a victimless crime um, because they are using um, active um, child pornography, adolescent pornography, adult pornography, um, and are oftentimes using videos that exist to graft onto images or different facial features of persons. Um, So that's important to know. Um, And two... We don't have we have an obscenity laws that we could extend to this on the federal level, saying that regardless of if there's a victim. Um, so David Prager got into a lot of trouble over the summer because he said that AI pornography isn't a big deal because it's a victimless crime, um, and it's not because the person who is watching it is actively being corrupted um, and perverted in their acquisition of this content. And what we do know largely is that people who engage in the sort of AI generated pornography are more likely to go on to pursue more and more extreme forms of pornography. And ultimately, there's a really high correlation between um, men in particular who use pornography, um, who end up using child pornography, who end up abusing and sexually molesting children. Mm. And then these children are the ones who are vulnerable to being used in pornographic content, and the vicious cycle continues. Mm. Wow. So I think it's important to talk about this in the context of how we know pornography, online pornography, actually works now. There are a lot of studies. There's a lot of data about this now. And because of the way it works in the brain, the average child, the average boy, is now exposed to pornography at the age of about 11. Mm. So 11-year-old boys are watching pornography And, of course, 11-year-old boys do not have the self-control that a man does, and their brains are not fully developed. And what studies have shown is that online pornography, exposure to online pornography, actually rewires the brain and how it works. And because of the way it's tied to the dopamine center and because of how that works in male brains of men are attracted to novelty, the way it ends up happening is that men will, boys will be exposed to pornography. And then to continue that stimulation, they kind of have to keep upping the ante. Mm. And it gets more and more perverse, more and more quote unquote novel, so that boys start out watching quote unquote normal pornography. And at the end of it, they're watching extreme things mm. like child pornography. Uh, incest is a growing industry in the porn industry, those sorts of things. And so the pornography industry almost functions as, one, it's a market response to a human impulse, not a good human impulse, a bad human impulse, but then it actually kind of creates these markets as well and Mm -hmm. actually ups the demand for these more perverse things. So I think Dennis Prager is wrong to say that it's as simple as, well, no one's harmed in child pornography when it's generated by AI because the actual 
creation of this content fuels the creation of more content, which Mm -hmm. is really damaging. Yeah. And think about the children. So the case that most recently came to mind is in New Jersey um, at a high school, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, this is content of high school girls. Like, first of all, high school is already a somewhat <sighs> awkward and vulnerable <laughs> time. Like, yeah. a lot of things happening and changing. Imagine walking around and all of a sudden seeing your male um, peers yeah. whispering about you, not being able to look you in the eye, looking at you in weird ways. And realizing that someone, even if it's not technically your body, yeah. putting you on pornographic content of naked women and then watching that, mm-hmm. um, like that's just so uncomfortable. So and yeah, dehumanizing. Yeah. So dehumanizing. And once these images are out there, when what happens when they apply to college and mm-hmm. they Google their name and all of a sudden pornographic content that isn't them but is them in a real way is the thing coming up and you're constantly explaining yourself for the rest of your life, trying to get this material taken down, um, telling future boyfriends, future spouses, this isn't my body, having yeah. men recognize, like, it's just so disgusting. Um, and because AI is so new, again, we don't have laws in place that actually prohibit this or provide any legal recourse to the victims of this. Yeah. Well, Brenda, I'm going to make a, a full circle here to what we were talking about before we started recording, which is I think So many things like this issue in many ways can be solved when you have really healthy whole families and you have fathers who are actively involved and you have healthy moms and dads at home that create a culture that honors and respects other humans. And, you know, one of the ways that I think we can, in in a very large, large view, tackle something like the spread of and decrease the demand for the spread of AI generated porn is by actually encouraging healthy relationships and healthy dating relationships. So let's take a minute and talk about dating. Brenda, you and Kara Frederick, you recently published a piece titled Meeting People, talking about dating apps, dating culture within the whole dating app world. It is a wild world. You wrote uh, another piece last month titled The Culture of Online Dating Encourages Hookups, Not Marriage. And you write that according to a 2023 Pew survey, only about half of users that use these dating apps are satisfied with their online dating experience. And many are getting burned out after frequent and prolonged use. Now, you and Kara argue that the old ways are likely still prone to be the best. This is the best way to meet someone, ways to meet people, to mingle. These old ways include, you know, meeting people at church, work, universities. But you also acknowledge that there are modern challenges to meeting people in these spaces. So, you know, if we're going to return back to those old ways of meeting people, I'm on board. I know (laughs) you're on board, but how do we get our generation on board with this? Well, I would say you don't have another option. (laughs) (laughs) This is the the only way. Um, People are twice as likely to get married if they meet in person versus meeting online. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't know that either. John Berger, he's a journalist, has done some good work on this. And I would say that's because... Online dating, there are exceptions, but by and large, online dating platforms and apps are optimized for hookups. They're not optimized for long-term relationships or marriage. Mm. And there are two buckets for this. One is how they're actually set up by these companies and the motivations of the companies. And then two, kind of them exacerbating or reflecting normal tendencies of how men and women tend to operate together. Mm -hmm. So the first bucket is that these companies either are paid by users, they're subscription-based, or they make their money through advertising. Mm. And either of those means that they don't actually want people to get off the platforms. They're not incentivized to do so because many of them want a large pool of daters to attract people to come to them. And then, again, they're being paid. That's right. And John Berger has also noted if you go through a lot of the annual reports of the Match Group, which owns most of them. They own Tinder. They own Match.com. They own a a lot of these sites. The words marriage, relationship, spouse, those words do not appear. 
They're oh, about wow. driving good experiences. Mm. And so they want to continue. They want you to be a lifelong user. They want you to keep coming back to the apps because people tend to be loyal to the apps that they choose, and they'll go on for years using these things. So the companies aren't incentivized for you to end up getting married. And then the other problem is the way men and women tend to operate on these sighting mm-hmm. apps and sites. So men tend to take a scattershot approach, which means they will go through and like everybody. Oh, no. And then they'll see who comes back and responds because women don't actually like most people. They don't say yes to most people. Mm-hmm. And so men take this approach in part because they're responding to women. And then they'll filter through and say, do I actually want to talk to this person who's liked me back? Mm. Women then in the reverse just get cognitive dissonance because they're being spammed essentially by these guys. And their response is to kind of keep upping their filters as a way of filtering through all these likes and all these profiles that they have been sent. So women then demand more or they just get cognitive dissonance and just check out. But all of this just creates a culture of hookups and frustration that keeps going on, a cycle that goes on for years and years, and nobody's really happy with them. And the answer, like you mentioned, about 50% of people are happy with online dating or somewhat satisfied. But the catch is that the other traditional ways of meeting people like church, university, all these other things have been undermined in various ways. And studies indicate that online dating has actually displaced meeting through friends and family, which is the best way of meeting people because your friends and your family know you and they can filter through and they know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Emma, where did you meet your husband? We met at a conference in Nashville. Oh, that's so sweet. started chatting the first night of the conference. And then the next day, we did some homework together. And the (laughs) third day, very romantic. (laughs) It's either passing con law or it's not. And I was going to pass con law. Um, And I did. And uh, the third day, he got my phone number. And then he wrote me a letter. And then we started dating a few months later, actually the week of the pandemic. Mm. Um, we didn't know it was the week of the pandemic, but it was. Um, but yeah, and we, we we were long distance for most of our relationship. Okay. Um, but we did meet in person. And then we found out like six months into dating that my husband's uncle um, was best friends with and worked for multiple years at a ranch in Colorado that our closest family friends worked at and were close friends with him. That's nuts. So the family that like was probably the closest family to me outside of my parents knew my husband's uncle for years, like decades ago, but for years. That's crazy. And so, yeah, he came from good stock. Wow. <laughs> Such a cool story. Well, I'm like, all right, well, maybe I need to go to more conferences. <laughs> <laughs> or not. It is interesting, though, because I've read, and Brenda, you can correct this, I've read that the top 3 to 5% of users on apps get the majority of interest, and then everyone else is left with really meager results in a way that it actually fuels like the most vain um, and limited understanding of what is attractive and desirable in a mate. And then everyone else who's probably perfectly good just doesn't get as much attention, um, which is maybe the sort of like continued use repeat users is it's not actually panning out at all like they thought it would. Hmm. Right. I th- that is true. It's a little bit different for men versus women in that men tend to outnumber women on these platforms and apps. So it is worse for men of the highest percentile of men are the ones who are getting the most attention. And then there are a lot of men who are just getting no profile sent to them or they end up, there's a term called doom scrolling, which is really sad that uh, men taking the scattershot approach like everybody. And at the end, they're told that there is no one left in their area. There, oh. there are no options. That's for them, depressing. Basically. That's that is right. very it's, depressing. How crushing is that? It's very <laughs> crushing. Right. You've gone through every eligible maiden, <laughs> and nobody wants you. Right. That's oh. that's kind of the message it sends. So it is, it is that. And adding to that, of what you're saying, Emma, is that the, there are filters that the apps impose that they are sending out the 
the profiles that are the most likes because they want people to stay on their platform. So they're going to continue sending out, quote unquote, the high value people to keep others on the platform. So they use those filters. And then there are the self-imposed filters of height and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Neither of these are good because, you know, you need embodied interactions and you're eliminating people that you might consider in person Mm -hmm. based on some things that are arbitrary or some things that you might think are important that at the end of the day, aren't that important. Yeah. And to bring all of this full circle, <laughs> I heard on the news today that the founder and CEO of Bumble, who created the dating app about a decade ago, is actually stepping down. Mm. And one of the top executives at Slack is taking over. And a large reason, um, as you've talked about, Brenda, is because their dating apps are losing money across the board. Um, Tinder, which is one of the most popular ones, actually, um, their stock is rapidly decreasing. Um, this most recent showing, mm. they're not able to actually get paid subscribers, just people who want to use it for free. And they're really struggling to try to figure out how to keep money in the industry. So it seems to be kind of falling apart across the board. But what's so terrifying to sort of bring in the previous segment is that the new CEO stepping on said, I'm excited to see ways that we can use AI to boost and reinvigorate the dating app scene. And we already know that AI girlfriends, boyfriends, friends, counselors, therapists is a massive market with many um, apps literally just devoted to this is your AI girlfriend. Um, And there's a ton of dystopian work on this. Imagine what happens, Brenda, when we now have Bumble and Hinge and Tinder using profiles of people that aren't real people. They're just AI generated to keep people engaged and to help those guys who aren't getting likes back to think that they have a chance here. And it's not a real person. Sure. This is disturbing. This is already happening. There are there are fake profiles on a lot of these sites and of course to continue but Mm. again to bring everything full circle (laughs) so the next step um there are the dating apps there are these sorts of things there are now apps called just a baby oh yeah these are bad remini and others where you can have like your virtual baby digital babies no they they are they're uh matching surrogates to people oh, who want children yes. or they're matching people who just want to co-parent together of after you have gone through these dating apps oh and you gosh. are completely <gasps> frustrated and dejected. Like we'll just share a kid. At the end of it, yep, these women women still want children. Men men are looking at AI girlfriends, okay. but women are okay. saying, well, um, how about just a baby or just look at co-parenting or surrogacies oh, or some Lord of these us. other things? And like you said, the children like who aren't getting a loving, safe relationship with their mother and father. So rapid fire, because if we're going to go back to traditional dating and just get rid of all of this online dating nonsense and AI nonsense, let's talk about some real quick tips and tricks for flirting and or advice you would give to guys, you know, let's help a brother out. And what what are some tips you would give the guys who are like, all right, I'm ready to give up the online dating world. Ladies, lay it on me. And also flirting advice, because that's fun. All right, rapid fire. First thing that comes to mind, it's all in the eyes, ladies. Yes. Flirt with the eyes. Yes, yes, yes. Keep it subtle. Keep it seductive. Um, <laughs> but good seductive. All yes. in the eyes. Your body language matters. Huge. Walk mm-hmm. in a way that allows your body to um, bounce and not slouch. Mm-mm. Don't take it too far. Don't take it too far. No. But don't slouch. <laughs> don't slouch. Okay. That's great. Very, very practical. Brenda, any advice? I will give two pieces of advice. One that's more theoretically minded and two that's a little bit more practical. So flirting is a matter of practice. Mm, so true. You cannot learn to flirt on social media. <laughs> so true. Get, get off of social media. These <laughs> these are embodied interactions. The social virtues are virtues, and they're a mad at, matter, like all virtues, of habit. Of You need to do it. And in the beginning, it will be horrible and embarrassing, and there will be lots of terrible situations. And you just got to plow ahead, guys, mm-hmm. and do it. And I know it's tough in this world of Me Too to Go up to a woman, yeah. but um, the, again, you have no other choice. The alternative is worse. Yes. Um, so just do it. And then my second piece of very practical advice for guys is on the first date, um, I think the best way to do is to give a woman options. 
which shows that yes. one, you have so thought and you, about it and mm-hmm. you've made a plan, but you are also trying to take her into consideration. Yes. So mm-hmm. ask her something like, do you like Mexican food? And if she says yes, I'm going to give great. I know this great place. Here's where we can go. And mm-hmm. even if you don't know a great place, don't say that you don't know a great place. Just ask all of your friends, yeah. your married friends, where you should take her to get Mexican. Exactly. You don't need to reveal to her that you don't know. Yes. Options are great. Speaking as I had a guy do this a few months ago, and I just so appreciated it. It was just really nice. He was like, we can either go for a walk or we can get dinner. And I was like, thank you. Thank you for giving options. It's very helpful. I have also two pieces of advice. One of them is not original to me, but I think it's brilliant. And I found it on Instagram. I don't remember by who. Sorry, individual. I wish I could give you credit. But um, it was another podcast. And it was a guy talking and he, he was speaking to women. And he said one of the greatest ways to get a guy's attention who, uh, who you don't know, just seeing someone cold out at a bar or whatever is to say, hey, can you help me with something? Ooh, and because there's something so innate in a guy that they want to be helpful, they're, of course they're going to say yes to a pretty woman. And you know maybe you need them to you know help you hold something because you have your arms full with stuff or, or Just whatever. Just not your purse, probably. Don't ask them to hold your purse. <laughs> yeah. Or your drink if you're at the bar. But. <laughs> sure, there's issues there too. Uh, but it it is a very interesting strategy instead of just going up and introducing yourself cold and saying, hey, I'm so-and-so, it creates this very natural way to start a conversation, to call on them and essentially acknowledge their manliness in a way to yeah. say, hey, I have a problem and I know that you can help fix it. This is the drop the hanky yes, advice. 100%. So olden times, right? <laughs> women would drop the hanky and then a man would pick it up and they could start a conversation. But now Precisely. women need to be creative. And like you said, finding ways to not ask a man out. Because mm-hmm. I don't think that that actually works out, even if you're a radical feminist. Look at the marriage rates. It doesn't actually work out um, the way you want it to. But you need to help the men come to the right conclusion. Yes, yes. Asking for help. It's so simple. Asking, Can you help me? Yeah. Do you know any good concerts, any good restaurants? My yeah. friends and I are looking to do this fun thing. So simple. So many things you So can do. simple. So many things there. And then the second piece of advice I'll give specifically for guys, and that is, and this is a tricky one because, Brenda, you mentioned the Me Too movement. But, um, guys, don't be afraid of being quote unquote creepy. I've heard so many guys say, well, I didn't want to talk to her because I didn't want to come off as creepy or I I didn't want to do X because I didn't want to come off as creepy. And I get it. it. We live in a culture where women are often labeling guys as creepy, but I think you have to shoot your shot. And if she's going to dismiss you right away and think of you as creepy, probably not a great match anyway. So shoot your shot and I mean, not to call you out too much, but a little bit. Stop using a fear of being creepy as an excuse to not shoot your shot. Just shoot your shot. If she thinks you're creepy, whatever, move on. Don't be creepy, obviously, (laughs) but don't be afraid to just strike up a conversation with a woman in the grocery store or whatever. That's not creepy. You're in a public place. She's safe. It's okay. And on the reverse at the side of women, assume goodwill. Exactly. Always think the best. All right, well, stay with us because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Now it is that time, once again, one of our favorite times of the week here at Problematic Women. Time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week, and the crown goes to... Molly Hemingway. 
Molly, oh, such a champion. She's the editor-in-chief of The Federalist. She is a fellow at Hillsdale College. She is a Fox News contributor. Honestly, if you want to follow someone who is so thoughtful in the field of news, just such a thoughtful and principled journalist, Molly Hemingway is your girl. And this week, Molly learned, though, that she, for her principled and sensible journalism, she has been censored in the past by government agencies. So this week, earlier this week, Congressman Jim Jordan wrote on X that hundreds of secret reports show that DHS, uh, CISA, the State Department, that they have all taken part in censoring Americans, specifically before the 2020 election. They censored pieces of information, jokes, opinions, all on social media. And one of the people that was listed in these uh, in these reports from these government agencies is specifically Molly Hemingway. Now, Molly reacted to this on X. She wrote on Monday, I'm still processing today's news that I was personally targeted by my government for suppression of my speech rights. I'm extremely angry, but also just sad at what our government has become. And and maybe I'm ignorant, but I was honestly a little bit surprised as well that someone like Molly Hemingway, even given the craziness of our world and censorship, that someone as principled as Molly Hemingway would also be a victim of government censorship. Well, I think the... The issue that we are facing now is it doesn't matter if you're principled or not, Mm -hmm. right? You can be targeted. That is kind of the message that has been sent, not just with social media targeting, media targeting, with the FBI and all that of, I think a lot of ordinary citizens now are afraid. A lot of people are going to be deterred from entering public service or doing these kinds of jobs, media jobs, being in the public square because they're afraid that their lives will be ruined Mm -hmm. and molly is being censored which is another kind of it's it's more insidious it's not seen as opposed to the fbi targeting people which is very visible but it's still this it promotes the same kind of fear and unease about i'm just doing something that's legal something that's principled and could be targeted for Mm. it it's very disturbing Well, congratulations to Molly Hemingway on speaking out, being a voice of truth in the media. Encourage all of our listeners, if you're not following Molly Hemingway across social media, go follow her. Read her reporting. She is a great source of conservative thought and, like I said, truly a principled journalist. So congratulations to Molly. But with that, we are going to leave it there for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Brenda and Emma, thank you both so much for being with us today. Of course. Thank you. This has been a joy. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Sorry, you mind reading the next line at the bottom. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.